This is Lunch with Legends, brought to you by ASE Media and ThinkSlinger.org. Lunch with Legends. And now, here's your host, Lou Stower. Thanks, Big Game Timmy Flame. The year 2020 would certainly classify as a trash bin fire in the history books if there were such a classification. What with the virus thing, the election thing, and what it's done to our everyday lives. 2020 has also been a year that we have seen an extraordinary amount of our baseball heroes pass away up to that big field of dreams, or would Tommy Lasorda would say, Big Blue Heaven. Many of them are Hall of Famers and most friends, at least acquaintances, of our Lunch with Legends guest, left-hander Jerry Royce from the Dodgers, Cardinals, Pirates, Angels, White Sox, and probably a few others in there. Author of the book, Bring in the Right-Hander, which uh, I read from cover to cover and was standing and applauding at the end, saying, more, 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 please. Um, My 22 Years in the Major Leagues is the uh, subtitle of the book. You can get it at jerryroyce.com. And also, a terrific photo gallery of some stadiums and other things you can find at Flickr. Jerry, thanks for joining us. Lou, great to be here. And uh, so how's things been going here with the COVID thing going on? Well, like everybody else, trying to make adjustments and and still move forward. But it's difficult, and like everybody else, you find roadblocks. And the best thing to do is to slow down, walk around them and then continue on your path. Absolutely. Uh, now, talked about the book, which I absolutely love, and I adore the uh, the, the, the photograph that's on the, the cover. Uh, how can people get it? Go to jerryroyce.com, and once you're there on the title page, it will explain just how to get one. Uh, you'll be able to use your credit card, or you'll be able to use PayPal and purchase a copy and since I'm the only one that answers the mail, and <laughs> then I'm the one that's going to print the label and get it sent out, usually within 24 hours. So you're the you had to furlough your your huge staff there. <laughs> that's right. I found somebody who would work on my terms, and that's me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. People said uh, when I went into business for myself, you're going to work for a real jerk. So <laughs> I know that yeah, you're well, not, though. And you get what you pay for. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then your photographs uh, on Flickr, how do they find you on Flickr? Well, that's simple. Go to Flickr, F-L-I-C-K-R. Okay. There's no E-R at the end. And then when you find the search mechanism, you just type my name in and a bunch of pictures should appear. I have them all in albums, uh, some personal things some things that I've collected over the years, uh, but mostly it's pictures of ballparks that no longer exist. For instance, some ballparks in 1988, when I took my camera with me on every, every road trip, I took pictures of a particular ballpark. There was Cleveland and Baltimore and let's see, Yankee Stadium and a host of others. I took pictures and Finally, put the finally learned Photoshop so that I can uh, get the color out the way that I saw it when I took the pictures. And as a result, I needed a place to post them. I looked around, and at the time when I did this in 2009, 
Flickr was the best place for me. So posted them all there. And uh, what's interesting has been the fans' reaction to it. Hmm. And I didn't realize this when I posted them, just how uh, important some of these pictures were to a lot of people because there was a lot of emotional response when I posted a picture on a particular day. And I got some wonderful emails and some wonderful comments about people who were reliving memories based on a picture that I just happened to take back in 1988. Yeah, most of us had to uh, see see it from the fans' perspective up in the seats. Uh, first off with our dad, well, like you did with your family there at Old Bush Stadium. And in St. Louis, and uh, you had the well, the the perspective of a major league baseball player, which you know everybody wanted to do that. But uh, yeah, you, I'm I'm sure you did stir the memory pot there. Well, I did, but the perspective was from someone who has played in these ballparks, and I came out early during early batting practice, and that meant two thirty, three o'clock, and it was usually on a pretty nice day. And I had full access to the stadium. Players get that. Uh, Broadcasters, not necessarily so. But I walked to every corner of the ballpark and found an interesting angle. And I'm sure that stirred a lot of memories with a lot of people. Uh, I, I guess the most response I got was from Comiskey Park in Chicago. That and Tiger Stadium, two ballparks that where the memories still stir and are right near the top with a lot of people. So uh, it, it's enjoyable to, re- to read what other people had to say about these very ballparks where I played in. And in Chicago, for instance, is where I made a living for a short period of time. Yeah, the south side there, a very interesting place uh, indeed there. And uh, Comiskey, um, let's see, I got there right when they rebuilt, uh, remodeled it, and, and it became, um, then it became U.S. Cellular Field. And, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, I, I had to also go there to do uh, uh, some B-roll, uh, get some B-roll shots for a story I was doing on the south side of Chicago basketball, high school basketball. So that was mm-hmm. that was an interesting time. I got, I got lucky, and they had the lights on, and then they turned the lights off, and it became... Quite a different place, South Chicago at night. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different life, isn't it? No, I was fortunate that I was there at the transition time in 1988 and then again in 1990 when the new ballpark, you could see it over the stands in right field. So on that one particular day in September of 1990, I went to both ballparks seeing the new Comiskey Park being built and the old one in its final week of play. Nice. Yeah, kind of had a, same, a similar story of, with Yankee Stadium. A friend of mine and I uh, went back to New York for the last uh, homestand as fans. And um, here we are in line getting in uh, to the old Yankee Stadium and right across the street, the new one's going up. So, yeah, it was, it was quite something to see. Yeah, it was just a moment in time and uh, you're glad that you experienced it. I'm glad that I saw it and had a chance to play in Old Comiskey, but my career didn't extend long enough into the 1990s to get a chance to pitch in the new one. So uh, I'm just I'm just grateful that I had the years that I did. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, well, well, I know, know we talked about this before, but I want to want to go over this again. But it's just amazing in your book, uh, "Bringing the Right Hander," my 22 years in the major leagues. 
you grew up just outside of St. Louis, and then you had the distinct pleasure of starting your major league career with the Cardinals. That had to be just phenomenal. Well, if you go, if I go back in my memory and think about it, and remember all of the times outside the drugstore where me, my friends, and other kids in the small town of Overland, Missouri would congregate. We'd get our baseball cards and we see who we would get. And then we would talk about our dreams of playing for a particular team. And everybody there, of course, in St. Louis was Cardinal fans and I was no different. So we shared our dreams of one day playing in the major leagues. Uh, little did I know at that time that we were talking that I would be the person mm. that would actually make it to the major leagues and play for the Cardinals. So uh, it was a dream that I know that millions of kids in the 50s and 60s and 70s had, but I was one of the fortunate few that actually lived that dream. Oh, yeah. And uh, Cardinal Nation, if you're not familiar with uh, that area, the Midwest, the Mississippi Valley, is huge. It uh, encompasses such a huge part of the Mississippi Valley, and it's such a, a fabric of so many walks of life from um, upper middle class to lower middle class and everything in between. Well, geographically, if you look at the Cardinals' history, they had farm clubs because of Branch Rickey going back to mm. the 1930s. And some of those farm clubs were in cities like Atlanta and Houston. So there's still a group of fans who were who are Cardinal fans today because of the minor league presence back in those decades. So it's far reaching, not only from, well, the current ball club, but from years past. It's quite a history. And I just wonder, knowing the way that the Cardinals do it, if it's the same way with Boston or the Yankees or with a lot of other teams that had a presence in some of these other cities before baseball hit expansion back in the early 60s. And then you had the privilege of listening to Jack Jack Buck explain the games to you. And I had the privilege of listening to Vin Scully uh, talking about the Dodgers. So right there. God, who can't fall in love with baseball? No, well, you have that Vin Scully uh, trace in your voice. For me, it was not only Jack Buck, but Harry Carey and right. Joe Garagiola. There was a time, and this is in the 50s and 60s, when in the summer, before air conditioning was prevalent, people had window fans. And that meant the window fan drew the the air from the outside. So it was all the homes were air cooled. That meant windows had to be open. And on a summer's day, it was not uncommon to walk from one end of the block to the other and not miss a pitch because everybody was a Cardinal fan. Well, I can just uh, see that walking down the street and you, you guys uh, playing with your friends there and on the street and and listening to that and seeing the uh, the lightning bugs and boy that just uh, brings back the the sounds and smells of summer uh, in in the streets there but um, uh, just want to we wanted to talk about some of the, uh, the 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 guys that left us but also we're in veterans day area here but I also want to thank you for your service with the army reserves and um, uh, now, uh, and you had some teammates with the Dodgers that also served, didn't you? I did. Rick Monday was a Marine. 
Dusty Baker, I think, also was a Marine. And I don't know how far it goes beyond that. There were guys that came in and out. But we were on the cusp of guys who had to join the military service to keep from being drafted and losing a couple of years overseas. So uh, there were a lot of ball players that were reservists. And it wasn't uncommon back in the late 60s all the way through the mid-70s for players to leave for a weekend meeting or for a summer camp sometime in July or August. Well, I know a lot of your uh, coaches and managers, they had to have served uh, in well, World War II, maybe Korea. Sure. Different generation. Right. And uh, so that had to be an interesting time. I'm sure there were uh, stories about about serving in the military as well. And got to give a shout out to uh, well, my favorite uh, football player and hockey player, uh, Captain Scott Eden of the U.S. Army and also the Anaheim Police Department and uh, father of two of my eight grandchildren. So I want to thank him for his service. So uh, got to get him out there to uh, uh, a Las Vegas area. Fi- no, it's not the Area 51s anymore. It's now the Aviators uh, and that beautiful new stadium there in Las Vegas. Sure. New ballpark, a new era of baseball, a new affiliation with the Oakland A's. And it'll be interesting to see because this was the second of a two-year agreement between the clubs. I don't know yet if it's been renewed, but it seems logical uh, geographically to have the Oakland A's here. Uh, The Angels, of course, are in Salt Lake. The Dodgers are in Oklahoma City. And I think that's in part because they own a good portion. One of the Dodger owners, Peter Gruber, I think, is also an owner or a part owner of the ball club in in Oklahoma City. But geographically, it couldn't be a better setup for Oakland and for Las Vegas. Well, yeah, you have to uh, the Raiders there now as well. So, uh, so how has that affected life in Las Vegas? Well, probably not as much as they expected it would when they had plans on paper. That's true. Because of the virus, but nobody's allowed in the stadium during a game. So it's just a different time and place. And, well, I'm sure history will recall it a lot different than what's actually happening. But it's it just doesn't seem right to have this new, beautiful stadium that is probably state-of-the-art. But yet nobody can come to the ballpark, uh, both in baseball and the new stadium, and and cheer their team on. So uh, it's lost a little bit of the glamour, but hopefully when things get back to the new normal, that people will be able to attend ball games and enjoy what the city has put forth. Yeah, there's uh, certainly a huge monkey wrench into uh, the business side of sports and also playing. Um we have a big, beautiful, state-of-the-art stadium in Inglewood here with the Rams and the Chargers, and they can't have any fans there as well. Um, how what do you what, how do you think this baseball season, the sixty-game baseball season, went? It was the best of what you could do with what you had, and it was there had to be a lot of people involved in negotiating the season, the number of games and how the season would uh, transpire. And all in all, looking back on it with that great 2020 hindsight, I think Major League Baseball did a pretty good job. Uh, They got in the World Series without any stoppage. 
there were some problems during the season that cost the team to postpone a few ball games. But uh, when you consider how bad it could have been versus uh, how well it ended up, I'd have to give Major League Baseball a passing grade. Yeah, um, how about the playoff uh, uh, system? Uh, um, every game was pretty much um, until the World Series. It was all back to back. How did you like that format? Well, you know, it, there's there were pros and cons about that. One is that you didn't get a chance to play in your home park in front of your home fans. Right. So a lot was missed because of that. But one thing that I bet the players didn't miss was the long travel from one ball, one side of the country to the other. Right. And uh, you stayed in one ballpark and stayed in one clubhouse and just switched uniforms from home whites to road grays or whatever uniform that you called for that particular day. So there were some advantages and a lot of disadvantages, uh, but nonetheless, they got in what they called a season. And it's something for the record books because uh, years from now, the season's going to be written about. It's going to be discussed, and I'm sure people are going to have different opinions about it, uh, both pro and con, as time goes on. Yeah, they're going to put this one in the Petri dish and dissect it, and uh, just like a virus right now, trying to find a vaccine for it, that's for sure. And, uh, uh, well, let's let's talk, talk about some of the guys. It's just struck a chord with me, and also in social media, uh, striking a chord that um, there's a lot of our heroes uh, that are leaving us here during the era in which you played. And uh, the list is long, unfortunately, and and full of Hall of Famers. Yeah, that's right. Uh, That's one of those unfortunate things. And it's one fact about life is that there will be a time when everyone moves on. So uh, there's been a lot of former baseball players And I saw your list. You emailed me a list. I'll let the people who are listening know this. And I took a look and I couldn't believe, first of all, how long it was. And second of all, how many of those people that I either brushed against and said hello and some to the extent that uh, we were close friends. So uh, it's one of those facts of life of death is included in it. So you deal with it. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and and it did bring back a lot of memories, and I and I uh, wanted to uh, talk to somebody who uh, who did exactly what you did was either became ex- great friends or had brushed up or uh, had some great uh, games against or with, and uh, Jerry Royce was after I went down my my mental Rolodex, which I had to dust off. Uh, Jerry Royce. I mean, 22 years in the bigs during that great era of baseball. And um, and thanks for saying yes again, because, uh, um, gosh, uh, just again, baseball is so much part of our life. And we found out just how much this year, I think more than the NBA, uh, their ratings were down, football. Uh, okay, football's going to be football. And hockey, it was like, oh, Tampa Bay won? Who's Tampa Bay? But baseball uh, seems to uh, affect uh, just about every, everybody and, and, and everything. I, maybe I'm prejudiced, but because I love the game so much that uh, 
uh, I love to talk about it and and uh, uh, and talk to people about it. But it just seems like baseball, even more now, meant more to some people because of this crazy year. You know, maybe so. But as far as TV ratings, radio ratings, all of that, you just ought to throw out the window because it was just a different kind of year and hopefully one that won't be repeated uh, in the future. So uh, those are the kind of things, like I said, you just set it aside and move on. Okay, well, let's move on to our list. Um, Let's talk about some people. Yeah, uh, I'll just go down the list and then we can go back. Uh, Don Larson started off in uh, on January 1st, then Jimmy Wynn, the Toy Cannon, on March the 26th, Al Kaline on April 6th, Bob Watson, um, who uh, passed away on May 14th, Tom Seaver, Tom Terrific, August 31st, Lou Brock on September 6th, Jay Johnstone, September 26th, then... Uh, Lou Johnson on September 30th, uh, Ron Paranoski uh, ten, on the uh, 2nd of October, Whitey Ford on October 8th, and Joe Morgan on the 11th of October. So I guess we can start off at the top of the list and, and go to Don Larson, who was the only pitcher to throw a perfect game in the World Series. Did you have any any interaction with him? You know, I don't recall specifically, but there were a number of dinners, particularly in New York, the bat dinner, which was celebrated annually. I don't know if they're going to do it this year. I doubt it. Uh, but there were there was a Yankee presence. There was a New York Giants presence, uh, the Mets, of course. So I'm sure that somewhere along the way, I had a chance to say hi to Don Larson. Yeah, now bat, um, what is that? Let's explain what that is. The baseball assistance team, it's out of New York, and they have a big dinner every year. And with this dinner, uh, they celebrate one of the New York teams, uh, whether it was the Giants, the Dodgers, the Yankees, or the Mets. Uh, They find a theme, and it's usually an anniversary of one of the world championships among those four. So that brings people in from all around the country, it's more of a celebration in the wintertime of baseball, and uh, the, it's something that a lot of people look forward to. So uh, the bat dinner is a big one, and uh, uh, I was fortunate I attended a couple of them. And Jimmy Wynn, um, the toy cannon, I believe he started off as a Houston Astro and uh, uh, Atlanta and then came to the Dodgers. Did you play? On, uh, were you on any teams with Jimmy? Yeah, I was on teams with Jimmy in Houston. Uh, We were teammates there, and then we played together in the 1975 All-Star game. Hmm. So Jimmy Wynn, yeah, he he was something. Uh, A good player and one of the the premier outfielders in the year. And what he was able to do uh, in those early years, he wasn't a real big guy, but he had tremendous power. And they had a seat in the Astrodome that was in the upper deck that was that had a, an icon on it. And I looked at the icon, and it was a toy cannon. There was only <laughs> one, and that was his nickname. There was only one other player that had an icon on it, and it had a red rooster for Doug Rader. So those were the only two seats in the Astrodome that had something on them to commemorate the longest home runs ever hit inside in Houston. So Jimmy Wynn was a team player 
And when he came over to the Dodgers, he was something special because he was the missing puzzle part in 1974 that helped propel the Dodgers into the 74 World Series against the Oakland A's. Yeah, that was a fun World Series. Is that the year that uh, Joe Ferguson made the final out uh, on, on a throw from right field to, to home plate? That was it. That was because Jimmy, he always said, um, uh, I have one one throw in me from center field. And <laughs> it said, let's make it count. So in this particular situation, Ferguson was playing right field. He came over, called, went off the ball, and got himself in perfect position to uncork a throw to Jaeger at home to retire a runner that was trying to score from third base. Oh, I, re- I remember that well. Where were we? We were. That was on a Sunday afternoon, I think. And uh, the family and I um, was with my mom and dad, and we were either going to or coming from my grandmother's house in in uh, La Crescenta. We were living in Tustin at the time, so yeah, those baseball memories they lock in there somehow. But uh, Jimmy was built like a, a more like a running back than a center fielder. You know that he was, but he started in the Cincinnati organization, and. Um, Eventually got traded to Houston, but I can't remember exactly what the deal was. But he went to the Astros, and and I thought in in the early seventies they were going to be a team to be reckoned with, particularly when they made that big trade with Cincinnati, mm. and it improved the Astros, but it improved the Reds even more. And the Reds went on to become the big red machine within the course of a couple of years, and were one of the dominant teams in Major League Baseball throughout the seventies. Yeah, that was one of the funnest rivalries uh, in the Western Division, air quotes, with Cincinnati and the Dodgers playing each other quite a bit. And then you had Walter Alston versus uh, Sparky Anderson in those games. So that was always fun to watch. You know, I never could understand that rivalry because it didn't make sense to me geographically (laughs) that Cincinnati would be in the Western Division with Atlanta. But that was the way things were set up back then. And it was... It was more of a negotiation to satisfy, I think, Gussie Bush and the owner of the of the Cubs at the time. I don't know if that was still Wrigley, but they wanted to keep as uh, close to as many teams in the East and in the Midwest. So they opted not to play in the Western Division. So there had to be a compromise, and that sent Atlanta and Cincinnati, two teams in the Eastern time zone, into the Western Division with uh, the Dodgers, the Giants, the Astros, and the Padres. Wow, that well, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, no, it, it doesn't. It makes no sense. <laughs> no, I mean your Absolutely explanation not. of it. Your explanation does. Does it geographic? No, we used to talk about that all the time. Why is Atlanta, which is pretty much on the East Coast, yeah. uh, in the Western Division? But uh, <laughs> it absolutely didn't. But uh, did August Bush have that much pull with Major League Baseball? At that particular time, he did. Wow. He did. So uh, I don't remember the politics of it. This was back in the 60s, late 60s, when uh, expansion was being discussed. And I don't recall all that went on, but uh, that was the compromise that was made, and history followed. Right. And, uh, yeah, Cincinnati, just barely a bus ride to Pittsburgh as well. So... Uh, didn't make a whole lot of sense at all, but it was fun. I'm I'm glad that Cincinnati uh, and the Big Blue Wrecking Crew and the Big Red Machine 
had that rivalry there. It was fun to watch all of that. The, the Reds full of Hall of Famers uh, and the Dodgers befuddle the Reds and, and uh, the, the Reds frustrate the Dodgers. It was fun. And uh, let's move on to Detroit and Al Kaline. I met Al for the first time when I was doing Angels games back in 1996 to 1998. Uh, we had a rain delay in Tiger Stadium and Al saw me sitting at the desk looking for a place to go. And he said, why don't you come with me? And he took me into a private box. And inside the box was Ernie Harwell. Oh my. So I had a personal audience with both Ernie and Al Kaline. And we talked Tigers baseball history for about an hour. These are, these are what those moments that are unscripted. And you can't plan them because they happen unexpectedly. And it's only after you realize what you just went through, how much you truly appreciated it. So an audience with both Al Kaline and Ernie Harwell, how much would somebody pay for that in a celebrity auction? I'll give you the keys to my car. There you go. Well, I don't no, know if I'd have I, I to get the three of those cars playing. <laughs> I, I didn't. If I pitched against Al at all, it would have been in spring training. But, uh, you know, at this point, that was the only time I saw American League teams back in the 70s mm, okay. because there was no interleague play. Right. Uh, I would see him in spring training and that would be it. Uh, I do remember facing some of the big stars in the American League, like Yastrzemski and even Harmon Killebrew. Big Frank Howard I faced when he was with Washington. Wow. So uh, that was the only time I ever saw him. What was that like to see uh, Hondo stepping in the box? And you're probably looking <laughs> about eye to eye. You know, there were there were three guys that I played with or against in my baseball career that when they took their position, either at the plate or on the mound, the, the game became distorted. As far as, <laughs> as far as a pitcher, it would be James Rodney Richard. Okay. Uh, somebody would look out there at him pitching, and Willie Stargell probably put it best. He said, you know, I'd have a whole lot easier time hitting JR if his fingers wouldn't brush in my face every time he threw a pitch. <laughs> oh, man. Frank, How Frank Howard was like that. And I remember asking somebody about where you pitch Frank Howard, and they said, uh, Make sure you get that ball in on him because he can turn on it and hit it a mile. But if you get it outside, he'll take that ball right up the middle and somehow it comes back at you a whole lot faster than what it was when you threw it in there. And the other player that <laughs> seemed to distort things as well was Dave Parker. When oh, Dave's, my, yeah. Yeah, when Dave, in the years that I faced him, he still had his health and there was no question about it. He, he was a five-tool player. And at that time, the best ball player in the game in the late 70s. Right. And when Dave came to the plate and he got a base hit, he also became a stolen base threat. But he was a power hitter and big RBI guy in the middle of the lineup who could hit for average. Yeah, he was, so he was something. Th those were the three guys that really distorted things. And I put an honorable mention on that list with Dave Kingman. Because it's really? six six, yeah, oh. yeah. When he came up to the plate, being big, and he had a big long bat, and he was strong as can be. <laughs> and when he swung the bat, it covered six inches on the outside corner, even though Jeez. he stood off the plate. Uh, these guys just distorted normal dimensions inside baseball. And uh, one of the infamous quotes of Tommy Lasorda, which we can't repeat here, is from Dave Kingman uh, when he was playing <laughs> with the Cubs. 
But uh, yeah. uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that three home, that three home run game. <laughs> By the way, this this is a little aside. The person who asked Lasorda the question that really kicked things in was a former broadcast partner of mine, Paul Olden. That's right. Yeah. So Paul and I worked together on ESPN games, and I found recently that Paul is the public address announcer for the Yankees. Yeah, he was an intern at KMPC 710 here in Los Angeles, and which is now the ESPN affiliate. And um, yeah. uh, he, Jim Healy says, got to go get some sound. And so, you know, you know, Paul, he's just like a big old puppy dog, just uh, wagging his tail there and calling games and just having a good time. And he just, um, I don't know where he got his drawl from, but, um, but yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, I enjoyed working with Paul. I enjoyed working with everybody at ESPN, and it was a it was a strange way to break in to the broadcast business uh, for a network during doing ball games with a different play by play guy. When I never really had any experience, save for a couple of games of high school basketball back in the early seventies when I attended college, so uh, it was a fun time, and for me, it was. It was like a college course in learning how to do baseball broadcast. Now, um, how did you? When did you decide that you wanted to go up into the booth? <laughs> well, that was I was in college at Central Missouri State, which is about fifty miles east of Kansas City in Warrensburg, Missouri, and a guy that I played basketball against in high school was the play-by-play guy, hmm. and he came to me and said look, um, do you want to do these basketball games with me and provide color? And I said, let's give it a try. Once I got behind the mic and I saw the excitement up close and calling the plays as uh, as they came along, I said, this is something I could really like. So it was always there, but always off to the side because I wanted to play. Oh, well, and, sure. And everything that I learned by playing, I could eventually tell people about once I got to the booth. And it sure beats the heck out of working. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, that's right. I work very hard at not having a what people call a traditional job. <laughs> that's right. You might be the first one there and the last one to go in a long day, but sure doesn't seem like it. And uh, yeah, so it, it's it's uh, like I say, I, I I love it. I love that. I love the travel. Love everything about it. Well, you're right about the broadcasting part of it. The travel. Well. When I'm in my 70s now, I don't travel quite as well as I once did. So doing home games here in Las Vegas, about 20 or 30 of them in previous seasons, that seems to suit me just right because it does give me time during the summer to catch up on some of the things that I missed while working both as a broadcaster and as a player. Oh, okay. I got a quick uh, a Paul Olden story. Uh, he was a, a graduate uh, of uh, Cal State LA, and a couple of other broadcasters went there that are doing really well. Pete Arbogast, the voice of Trojan football, uh, among them. And um, he made the rounds in the major leagues uh, and, and did very well. So he was back here uh, in Los Angeles in between gigs, and working at uh, KNX 1070 here in Los Angeles, um, doing sports casts um, uh, every half hour. So here he is doing doing these uh, uh, sports broadcasts, and he had been the PA announcer for the Super Bowls. And um, 
somehow that that faded away. But uh, I guess the Yankees, after boy, this, the the name of um, their PA announcer, their longtime PA announcer, his name's that's uh, Bob Shepard. Bob Shepard, that's right. Thanks. Uh, after he passed away, uh, uh, Paul gets a call from New York, and I, from what I hear um, at the KNX newsroom, before the question got out of the mouth of the person in New York, do you want to come here and be our PA guy? Paul dropped the phone and was on a flight to New York, and that's the last we've ever seen of him. So, I, who can I blame I, him? I, no, you can't. When you when you're offered a job like that uh, in an iconic position, well, there's only one job like that in New York for yep. the Yankees. So, yeah, you're the guy that gets offered that job. Yeah, you're on a plane and you're taking it. <laughs> that's right, and you're sleeping there too, probably. Uh, that's for sure. Um, let's go down the list again. Bob Watson, who to me uh, was a player in the mold of Jimmy Wynn. Uh, in a way, yes, but also he, he was a lot more than that. Uh, Jimmy Wynn didn't hit that much for average. Bob Watson could. But Jimmy Wynn's power was to left field. Bob Watson was right, le- right center to left center. And um, later on, Watson went on to become the, one of the principals in Major League Baseball. I can't remember whether he is league president or worked for the commissioner or just what, but Bob had an extensive career in Major League Baseball, both as a player and uh, in the front office. I was just amazed when, I, when uh, Bob would come to the plate and uh, he, he hit mostly with his hands and his wrists. Um, for for average or to get a hit, but then when he wanted to hit it far, he sure did. Yeah, he had a bat. His bat was one of those rare ones, very thin at the handle, mm. but it was more like a bottle. If you can, if you could extend the stem of a regular soda bottle or beer bottle, in in our case, <laughs> and to about thirty six inches, this would give you some idea of the kind of bat that Bob Watson used and. You, you see the way that he would whip that bat, and you say, well, he, he doesn't look to be that strong. But when you picked up the bat and tried to swing it, it became more of the bat swinging you. <laughs> and at that point, you realize just how strong Bob Watson was. Wow. So, so did you face him? I did. And, and <laughs> I'd looked up years, years ago. Uh, it was, it's David Smith who runs Retosheet.org had puts together one of the best websites for pitcher and batter matchups. And one day while broadcasting radio for the Dodgers, David was at the ballpark at in Washington, D.C. for a Nationals game. And he gave me this printout of batter matchups. And I kind of glanced through it because there were a lot of surprises in there. Hmm. Not only the guys who hit me well, but the guys who didn't. And on the list of guys who hit me well was Bob Watson. And I looked at it, and he hit close to 500 against me. Wow. And over 40 at bats. So you look for a sample, you can understand somebody going 5 for 10. Even (laughs) 8 for 16, because they're on a good run. You caught them on a day when they were hot. But over 40 at bats, when somebody hits that well against you, baseball has a term, and they say, that guy owns you. Yeah, I was just thinking that. So I would say uh, in the category of guys who owned me, Bob Watson has a place high on that list 
against me. Now, do you remember those guys like that, or do you try to get that out of your mind, that that he owns you? Uh, today, it doesn't matter that much, because I just look at it and I say, well, okay. Because they're, <laughs> on the other side of it are a lot of great ball players who hit well against everybody else, but against me, uh, I seem to have their number. Pete Rose was one of them. Pete Rose, no question about it, is uh, Hall of Fame caliber. Mm -hmm. But against me, he hit 240. Wow. Did you focus on a guy like that coming to the plate? Would you focus a little harder? No, I wouldn't. Everything was full bore whenever I pitched against anybody. Pete hit the ball, but he hit it right at somebody. He hit it hard. (laughs) And on that turf, that ball came off his bat like a rocket. But unfortunately for me and unfortunately for him, it was right at somebody. Yeah, there was some good fielders behind you in those in, in during that time. And yeah, so Bob, Bob Watson was a good guy, was a good friend, and I had conversations with him for a long period of time. We were teammates in Houston, and I guess the last time we visited was maybe eight years ago at Dodger Stadium when there was an old-timers game. Hmm. And they invited former members of the Yankees and former members of the Dodgers and put us out there in the field to see how how bad we could look. <laughs> well, you still had fun. We, uh, yes, we did. We had as much fun as anybody in the ballpark. Oh, man. I just remember Bob uh, Watson seeing him on TV uh, in those World Series games uh, again when he was with the Yankees against the Dodgers. And it seems like it was always a line drive up the middle whenever he would get in there. but uh, And then we'll move on to uh, Tom Terrific, Tom Seaver. Now, um, was he was his career waning when yours was just rising? The first time I saw him pitch was in 1969. Okay. So I, I think he was he was still hot. Yeah. And I think he, he won the Cy Young Award in 75. So he was still pitching as only Tom Seaver could. Hmm. I had a conversation with him one time uh, when I was with Houston and before I moved into the home that I bought there, stayed at the same hotel that the Mets did. Hmm. And I had a had a moment with Seaver in the hotel lobby and I took advantage of it because he seemed approachable. And I said, you know, you've had some great seasons. So I imagine that when you go out there, you pretty much are working on all cylinders. He says, nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> and I said, really? I said, well, how often are you working on all cylinders for a ball game? He said, maybe five or six times a year. Now, this was a time when a pitcher had 35 to 40 starts a year. So I said, so I said the next obvious question, how then do you get by when you don't have your good stuff, yet you're winning all these games? He said, what I do is I don't panic. First of all, I find something that's working and I'll build a game around it. And eventually, uh, uh, pitches that were missing at the start of the game will come better into focus. And when I get to the order the third time or fourth time through, I have something that they haven't seen. And that allowed me to get through a ball game. So that kind of surprised me. He trusted his stuff, didn't panic, and found a way to throw strikes, stay ahead of the hitters, and keep his team in the ball game. I guess that's one way you define a Hall of Famer. Yeah, that's greatness, that's for sure. And I'm sure you took that food for thought and ate it up and, and probably oh, translated oh, it into your game? Or, or... Oh, I did. You know, he had the respect, Seaver had the respect of the opposition as well. 
in the early days with the Cardinals, we were at Shea Stadium, Seaver was pitching. I was sitting on the bench watching Red Shandy beelined over to me from his spot near the, uh, the, the bat rack. And he says, I want you to come with me. So we walked a couple of steps and he put me on the front step of the dugout to the mm. corner. And he says, I want you to sit there and watch him. I'll come over and ask you some questions while he's pitching. And sure enough, he did. He says, what do you see? And I said, he seems to be ahead of everybody in the count. And he says, what about his pitch sequence? And I said, it changes. He'll start somebody with a fastball in one location, change speeds. And it was then that I realized that pitching was not just an exercise as far as Seaver was concerned. It was an art form. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because, you know, the batters are, are keeping a close eye on the bat and the uh, on deck circle. And they pass on that information to each other. So, yeah, mixing, mixing your pitches up, that's a huge part of uh, a pitcher's game. Well, that's what, that's what made him special. And that's what makes the guys who are the top echelon kind of pitchers uh, the winners and the Hall of Famers that they soon become. I never got to uh, meet Tom Seaver. I was even planning a trip to go up to his winery just to meet him. But um, then, then he uh, came down with his illness and uh, um, didn't want to impose myself then. But uh, I did get to see him pitch in 1986 at, at uh, the Big A, Anaheim Stadium. And there were over 64, it could be 66,000 people, I recall seeing it on the message board, when it was uh, enclosed for the Rams. And it was a hot July day. And uh, it was the only game uh, before or since where two 300-game winners faced each other. It was Tom Seaver for the Red Sox against uh, Don Sutton for the Angels. And it was a precursor to the playoffs that year, the ALCS, because they met in the ALCS, uh, which the Angels should have won, by the way. But um, uh, it was a pitcher's duel for the entire six innings that both Seaver and Sutton pitched. And the only pitch that uh, uh, Seaver made, bad pitch, I guess you could call it, was Bobby Gritch's leadoff home run in the bottom of the fourth inning. And it was after um, an argument between um, uh, the Red Sox manager, uh, John, um, uh, John McNamara, and the home plate umpire. So I don't know if that distracted. Could that distract a pitcher in, in a, a before innings inning starts an argument uh, between innings? It could. But uh, but anyway, you know, it was, who knows why? Sometimes you just give credit to the hitter for getting a pitch in his zone and doing what he's supposed to do with it. Yeah, I talked to Bobby about it. As a matter of fact, he, uh, Bobby talks about that in a previous uh, episode of Lunch with Legends, and he said. I just saw the ball. It was big and fat, and I just swung. So. <laughs> oh, I know that look. I know that look that hitters get when they see a pitch coming in. It's like they're seeing uh, a beach ball come in there, and, and the good hitters don't miss it. And Bobby didn't, and that was the difference in the ball game. So uh, that was a, a, a fun to watch, those two, Tom Seaver and, and, and Don Sutton. And um, uh, any other stories about Tom? You know, there are probably a bunch of them, but at this point, they're, uh, that's the one that I remember yeah. most. Yeah. yeah. 
And uh, then Lou Brock, I know that um, uh, Lou Brock with the Cardinals there, he was um, uh, for the offense and the defense, uh, uh, Lou Brock was the Cardinals. Lou, Lou was a presence. There's no question about it. Uh, he was always in a good mood, regardless of whether we won, whether we lost. He was the same person uh, at the start of the day as he was at the end of the day. Uh, when things didn't go well for him, he didn't throw a tantrum. He didn't yell and scream. In fact, I remember one particularly tough at bat for Lou. We were in St. Louis. I was with the Cardinals. And Lou struck out, was very unhappy, dropped his bat in the rack, tossed his helmet, and came to sit on the bench. Now, as a player, the last thing you want is a pitcher who's been taken out of a game or a batter who just had a tough at bat sit right next to you. But Lou chose to sit right next to me after this tough at bat. And I'm thinking, boy, am I going to hear it. But I didn't. What I did hear was this. Lou broke down the entire at bat and said what he was looking for, what he didn't get, and what the pitcher did. And eventually how he struck out that particular at bat. He said, that's something I got to think about. I'm going to remember this at bat. And by that time, the inning was over and he took his position on the field. Mm. And it didn't occur to me until a little later, you know, what he was doing. I don't know whether he was talking to me or he was trying to teach me how to handle a difficult situation. Uh, Because as a pitcher, you have a tough at bat come off the field uh, and the opposition's put a couple of runs on the board and you have to deal with it. But it was Lou's way of working through a tough situation and then turning around the next time at bat, forgetting it and doing the best he can at that time. So uh, it was it was a learning experience for me in my 20s. And I didn't know it was really happening. Wow. So, yeah, it was one of the then there was this time um, when they put the turf in and it's a hot, sultry Sunday afternoon at Bush Stadium. Now. They didn't have turf shoes back then, and I don't know what football players wore, uh, but Lou eventually got a pair of soccer shoes from his uh, company, and that was Converse. But there was a Hmm. game he was playing in his regular spikes in left field. He came off the field that day and took off his shoe, he took off his socks, and you could see an imprint of a blister in the shape of the spike that was on the bottom of his foot. Oh, my goodness. and he said, that's the last time this is going to happen. He apparently called Converse and they sent him some soccer shoes. These shoes, and because it was Lou, be, they became the precursor of the turf shoes that players wore during the 70s and 80s and probably even today. So it was Lou Brock who brought those uh, to Major League Baseball, just like he did the cup bat. And Oh, no uh, kidding. Yeah, he was the one. He exchanged bats with a Japanese player, uh, and they had a cupped end because they they claimed it was a harder wood. It did have a different finish on it, uh, but it allowed it to be a half ounce lighter. In fact, uh, a lot of teams thought the bat was illegal because they had never seen it before, but there was nothing and probably still isn't anything in baseball rules that says you can't have a cupped bat. Yeah, there's there's a, still used today. I had heard that it had something to do with wind resistance or something like that. 
No, I think it just made the bat lighter. You could get a bat that probably would be a an ounce heavier, meaning that you had harder wood. But if you cupped it at the end, uh, the give back would be that you could get it through the zone and a harder bat means the ball carries a little bit better. Okay. Yeah. That, uh, now that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense because I know that the hitters, um, always are looking for an advantage on the pitchers, the good ones like Jerry Royce, <laughs> who's here with me on, uh, lunch with legends. And, uh, that's you another thing. Another thing one, that, question, uh, one more, one more story about Lou. Sure. When he got on first base, uh, Lou wasn't traditional in his in had taken a lead. Other base stealers during those years, the top ones were Joe Morgan, we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. and also Davey Lopes. Now they took bigger leads, but they stayed pretty much where they were. But with Lou, he never took the same lead twice. Really? Sometimes, yeah, sometimes he took a big lead just so that the pitcher would throw over to first. And he could get a look at his move other times. But when he was stealing, what he liked to do is be standing straight up and moving towards second base, taking a step or so. Lou was so quick that with his first step, he could be at full speed. Wow. So he he would just kind of saunter off the bag and then go. Yeah, he, he would never take the same lead twice. Sometimes he would wait. And deep into the count before he would go, that would give the guy who batted behind him. And most times it was Ted Sizemore Hmm. who would go deep into count and give Lou a chance to steal the base. But with Lou over at first base, it split the pitcher's concentration between the batter at the plate and Lou at first. And that meant that Sizemore was going to see more fastballs. Hmm. So in some cases, that gave Ted a better better pitch selection, something he could hone in on. And uh, if it was in his zone, he went after it. But for most part, Sizemore took a lot of pitches. So that gave Lou a chance to get himself in scoring position. And then once he got there, Ted would hit behind the runner, a ground ball to second, and Lou would be at third with one man out. And usually that meant a run for the Cardinals early in the ball game. And Cardinal baseball at his finest right yeah. there. Yeah, uh, they pretty much started that, and then, uh, boy, Oakland perfected it. And, uh, uh, man, that, yeah, that that uh, was fun to watch. Now, did Sizemore do that by design with uh, Lou Brock on base? I think that was the reason why the, di- why the, why the Cardinals traded for him. Uh, they did have Richie Allen, mm-hmm. who, who led the Cardinals in home runs in 1970, uh, but Richie— disappeared later in the year in 1970 for a couple of weeks. And Mr. Bush wasn't going to tolerate that. He's, and I, I suppose he gave an edict to Bing Devine and said, we, we can't deal with this. So they traded for Sizemore and Bob Stinson, a catcher. And Sizemore hit one home run, but his value as far as producing runs by putting Brock in scoring position, uh, if you measured that against what Richie Allen did during those years, uh, you would find that it probably led to more Cardinal victories uh, than it did in 1970. Wow. So uh, that's how valuable Ted Sizemore was. Ted gives all the credit to Jim Gilliam, who who was a coach with the Dodgers at that time. And how did Gilliam learn to do it? He batted second behind a guy by the name of Maury Wills. Yeah. 
Man, he was, he's still something. Uh, we we got to get yeah. Maury Wills here on Lunch with Legends. That that would be fun. And uh, yeah, so that, the, you can't do a whole lot better than that. That's for sure. Uh, let's move on the list. Um, uh, I don't know if I want to save this next one for last. I think I'm going to save this one for last. I'm going to move on to uh, Lou Johnson. Sweet Lou was just that. And my first recollection of of Lou was um, the 1963 World Series and the Dodgers and the Twins. And he hit what's now called a walk-off home run to win one of the games. And then um, uh, didn't disappoint when when I met him at the press box uh, at Dodger Stadium one night. And and, um, so because both of our names are Lou and um, spelled differently, but uh, we became instant friends. And I think Lou, with his smile and, and, and his manner, was everybody's friend. Oh, there's no doubt about it. When Lou came into the clubhouse, you knew that there was something special. Suddenly, there was an air of excitement. Lou hmm. had something nice to say to everybody. And he had a laugh that was infectious. Yeah. And you knew when Lou was there. And everybody was, was his friend. They went up to him, said, hello, how you doing? And he talked to you and give and talked to you as long as you had uh, a, a time for. So guys were getting out to the field, but they always made a special effort before they did when Lou was in their presence to say hello. Yeah, he was he was a lot of fun. And I know that uh, uh, Ms. Ray, uh, Rachel Robinson, uh, had a, a good uh, relationship with each other. They were... You could just see the the kinship and the friendship when those two would meet in in, in the press box. Yeah, truly one of those special people that if you spent any time with the Dodgers as an employee or as a player, uh, you came across Lou and you knew it was someone special. There were a lot of I was blessed in a number of different ways playing for the Cardinals, the Pirates, and the Dodgers because all three of those teams had special people within the organization, former players, managers, or coaches that people would recognize instantly as part of what that team was all about. Uh, with the Cardinals growing up, I knew all of those guys from, from reading about them in the newspaper and hearing uh, the games on the radio. When I got to Pittsburgh, it was still the 1960 Pirates. Those players that were part of that, uh, they came around and they said hello to everybody, and it made for a special time. It was a blending of decades from the 60s through the 70s when I first played there. And then, of course, with the Dodgers, uh, the world championship teams of the 60s, and then uh, the Dodgers of the 70s that got to the World Series, but they couldn't quite bring home the trophy uh, all the way through 81 and after I left in 1988, there were a lot of special people during the O'Malley era that made that group of Dodgers uh, special. Yeah, and he was definitely one of them. And uh, now let's move on to another Cardinal great, um, kind of the opposite mindset of Lou Brock and, and Bob Gibson, who was uh, uh, probably just as famous for his demeanor as he was for his presence on uh, his fastball coming at you. In 1969, I was 19 years old, not even two years out of high school. 
and I went to Major League Spring Training. And the spring training lockers were set up numerically. Gibson had number 45. Mike Torres wore number 48, and I had number 49. So that meant that I was one locker away from the man who had the greatest season for a pitcher probably in all of baseball history in 1968. That was Bob Gibson. Hmm. So to be that close to him just less than two years out of high school, uh, it was beyond something special. Did you contain yourself sitting next to him? Uh, Well, what I tried to do as a rookie, especially at 19, was just be quiet and be out of sight and do more (laughs) listening than I did talking. Um, You know, eventually I went up to him and I introduced myself and I said, uh, can I call you Bob? He just looked at me rather strangely. Why would you call me anything else? But, (laughs) you know, but he had had nicknames, Gibby and Hoot. Uh, I didn't want to call him Mr. Gibson. But at 19, it seemed appropriate, especially after the season he had. But he, but he, he, he realized quickly what I was saying. 19 and uh, just a kid in the first spring training. And he said, yeah, just call me Bob. Nice. And he says, can I call you Jerry? And I said, yeah, he never called me that. But he, every time he referred to me, it was. I'm not going to ask. No, he looked to his right. It was lefty. If he looked to his left, it was Steve Carlton. He called lefty, too. So we were the two guys in the clubhouse that he called lefty. And we knew by the tone of his voice which one of us he was talking to. <laughs> well, that had to be special. Boy, what a what a uh, starting rotation there, huh? Man. Well, it, it, it was a good group, but uh, that was the first time that I met him. But I saw what kind of competitor he was. And even though you think that somebody is a great competitor, until you actually see pitch by pitch, including the preparation before the ball game, all through the game, uh, you really don't have an idea of what it's all about. Uh, I was fortunate that I saw it up close and personal. And uh, you mentioned Red Shane Deans, uh pulled you aside during your um, uh, graduate courses in uh, pitching in the major leagues to watch Tom Seaver as your homework. So did Were you required uh, by Red to watch Bob pitch? I, well, I, I was fortunate that I had guys who pitched for the Cardinals at that time. Gibson and Steve Carlton both became Hall of Fame pitchers. Yeah. So there was a lot to learn just by sitting on the bench. And then throughout the league at that time, uh, Ferguson Jenkins, Gaylord Perry, I don't know whether he was in the league at that time. He came along a little later, but there were a lot of guys who were some top-notch pitchers. And if you just sit there and watch, you could learn exactly what it was they were doing to make themselves that special. Hmm. Wow. Now let's move on to Ron Paranoski, a, a pretty much a lifelong Dodger, was um, uh, uh, turned into a relief pitcher. I guess you, you could call him a closer at that time uh, for the Dodgers. And um, also was, I believe, he was your pitching coach with the Dodgers. Red Adams was there in 1979. I think Perry took over in 1980. Okay. And, and with Perry... Uh, he was a different kind of pitching coach because he'd let you become your own best pitching coach. He'd make a suggestion here, he'd make a suggestion there, and uh, it was up to you to use it and utilize 
his thought process the best way possible. He was an extra set of eyes. He wasn't particularly hands-on unless you wanted him to be. He, he gave me a lot of space, and it allowed me to develop uh, that cut fastball that I came up with that really turned my career around in 1980. Huh. So, and once I, did, once I developed that pitch, uh, it was just a matter of coordinating uh, the thought process with the other pitches that I had. And that, for me, was a springboard to uh, three or four consecutive years of success with the Dodgers that turned out to be my best in baseball. Yeah. Now, what year was your no-hitter? That was 1980. Okay. So that was your turnaround year. It was. It was definitely. It was the Comeback Player of the Year Award, which, by the way, (laughs) I'm going to get on my soapbox here and tell you that um, the Comeback Player of the Year Award is probably the most important award in baseball. And why is that? Really? Why is that? I'll tell you just why. Okay. Because you have to be good one year. Then you have to stick up the place another year. Then you have to come back and be good again. And only in competition with other players do you get the honor of being called the Comeback Player of the Year. I think anybody can be a Cy Young Award winner or an MVP, but it takes three different seasons at a minimum to be the Comeback Player of the Year. To win that off, one award. That one, That's one award that nobody really thinks Over that three much years. about. Over three that, years. At least three years. That's a Maybe lot of even work. more. That's, That's a lot. A lot. Yeah. You got to be good, bad, and then good. Wow. I mean, you know, anybody can be consistent. That's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You can get up every day at 7.30. Yeah. Well, you can be consistently bad or consistently good. <laughs> but to alternate yeah, years. I'm, I'm, I'm the latter on that one. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I'm, I'm off my soapbox. Back to that. By the way, is that Maxine that we're hearing in the background? That's our executive producer, Maxine. And uh, yeah, okay. she's uh, she's still uh, still producing. And, and uh, say, she says, hi, Jerry. Wonderful. To she, she tell just, Maxine, give her a bone and tell her I said hello. I will. She, it's, it's a little warm in the room here. She opened up the door to the studio and came in. So she has her. She has the key code. So it's, it's, it's only four numbers, so she can use each paw, each claw yeah. and paw there. But, you uh, know, one final, one final thought about Ron Paranowski. Sure. As, um, during spring training, the Dodgers used to invite former players, uh, a lot of the guys from the 50s, Carl Erskine or Preacher Rowe or Johnny mm-hmm. Padres, mm-hmm. to come to spring training and work with the pitchers for a couple of weeks before the games began. So we not only had the mind of Paranoski or Sandy Koufax, who was there every year, but also some of the Dodger greats from the 50s. Uh, and Perry, being the pitching coach, said, no ego here. And he laid it out for everybody. He said, if you, whatever you can learn down here from any of us, we're willing to give you the time it takes to help you on your way. So... When you have a pitching coach that tells you right up, if you want to go to Sandy and talk about something, go ahead. It's only going to make us better. Or Carl, or Preacher, or Johnny. So all of those different guys, you put all of that together, uh, it, it's going to put together. It's going to help a pretty good pitching staff be even a little bit better. Wow, talk about a guy who uh, knew how to throw the ball. Whitey Ford passed on October the eighth. I, I met Whitey, I think, in an old-timers game or, as I said earlier, about one of those bat dinners. Uh, 
didn't have much to say to them because, well, at those dinners, you know what they're like. You get a chance to say hello to somebody and then someone else comes along and <laughs> says hello to them. And uh, it's just one of those passing moments where yeah. uh, you don't realize that you met one of the game's greats and just had the chance to say hello. And that time had come and it gone and it was gone. Yeah, well, he was uh, something to watch. That's for sure. Uh uh, all I know is uh, that he was one of the great ones and uh, uh, didn't get a chance to see a whole lot uh, of Whitey Ford pitch, but sure read a lot about him. And then Joe Morgan, um, boy, what what a player, what a man uh, he was and uh, started off, I believe, with the Houston Astros. And didn't he hit his first home run off of Sandy Koufax, speaking of Sandy? You know, that's some trivia that I don't know about. But, what? Uh, no, that yeah, that one slipped past me. So oh, okay. you, you, I've learned something listening to you today. That may have been the case. But Joe, when you look in the middle of that lineup of the Big Red Machine, uh, you have, I think, you have a number of Hall of Famers. And there was never an easy out. Hmm. Joe had put his own particular spin on the ball game. Pete was not a stolen base kind of guy. So with Joe, who had both power and could hit for average, uh, he found a way to get Pete around the bases, and he more or less set the table. Uh, Pete would probably be in scoring position. Joe would be on base somewhere, and then the big guns started coming in, and that uh, that meant you were going to see Bench and Perez mm. and a whole host of others. George it Foster. Was, there, yeah, there was never an easy out anywhere in that Cincinnati lineup. Joe was just part of it. Yeah, and uh, did you have a chance to? Were you on the same team, Astros team, with Joe? No, Joe. The the, the two times he was with the Astros, uh, that sandwiched the time I was there. I was there in seventy two or seventy three. Okay. Joe was part of the deal the Astros had with Cincinnati that brought uh, Lee May and Tommy Helms to the Astros, but he went oh, there okay. with. And that that was the beginning of the big red machine when when uh, Joe got there. But a stolen base presence, there's no question about it. Uh, one of the three best in that era of the 70s and early 80s, along with Lou Brock and Davey Lopes. Yeah, he was a heartbreaker for the Dodgers uh, with the Reds. And then one more time, he did it with the Giants on the last day of the season. Hit, hit a home run. Uh, a walk-off home run to sink the Dodgers' chances, and uh, uh, the Giants. I'm sure. I'm sure there's still some fans still celebrating that game. Well, I was warming up in the bullpen uh, in that game. Terry Forrester was in the game, so I think we had a right-hander and a left-hander in an effort to keep the Giants at bay. But uh, Joe came to the plate, got a hanging slider, hit it out the right, and well, that's all she wrote. Yeah. Sure, my sure. Well, we're still writing here on Lunch with Legends. Jerry Royce uh, and I are having, I guess, uh, a wake here, a baseball wake, uh, remembering uh, baseball players who have passed here in this weird year of 2020. And, well, uh, I would, you know, I wouldn't call it a wake. I'd call it a celebration mm -hmm, yeah. because what, yeah, what we're remembering about all of these players is the highlights of their career, how we relate to them and how special they were to us. And I'm sure that the listeners are saying, I've got a story that you haven't hmm. covered yet. So that's the whole idea of what we're doing here. That's right. And if you do, uh, I'm going to set up a an email account on my Anchor FM 
which the podcast launches on. So just check out for that. Uh, or loosedhours.com. I uh, was finally able to wrestle that away from somebody. I don't know who the heck would want that besides me. But uh, anyway, uh, or you can hit me up on Facebook and um, uh, tell your stories and uh, give me some ideas of who else I can talk to. But speaking of weirdos, uh, the, probably one of the nicest weirdos you'd ever want to meet and uh, uh, play with and play against, Jay Johnstone, passed away on September 26th. And uh, I know that he had a lot of health problems uh, the, the past few years. But, uh, I mean, you could just see in that impish grin that he always had that something was going on. No question about that. Jay came to the park uh, with the attitude. It was the same attitude I had. And that was work hard, play harder. Mm. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, He had a sense of humor. And between all of the work that he did, he found ways to have fun with the game. So uh, for me, it was just like a partner in crime and and playing for the Dodgers. With Tom Tom Lasorda, uh, Tom didn't like that kind of thing. But... He was the he was a manager that probably instigated more pranks than <laughs> anybody I ever played for. So my feeling was, if you're in the game, uh, you're going to be in the game and you're going to be part of it. So he would play a prank on a player, and that made him fair game as far as I was concerned. So anything was open to uh, any of the ideas that we had. So. Once that door was open, then the ideas just happened. You know, I think of Jay, there's so many different things that flash through my mind <laughs> as far as memories. One of them had to be a Dodger giveaway day. And I can't remember the particular year, but you've been to Dodger Stadium at the end yeah. of the season when they have fan appreciation right, day. Yeah. It seemed every year they were giving away a Toyota truck, a Mitsubishi big screen TV, mm-hmm. and a catamaran. Which I never these got. were the, yeah. the yeah, none of us ever got these things, uh, <laughs> but but they would promote this uh, during the month of September or every day game. They would parade all of these prizes around from center field through the first base side on down to third base. So the gates open on this one particular Sunday afternoon, and John Ramsey, the announcer. The PA announcer went into all of these giveaways, his pre-record or his um, his written script of what the what the gifts were. So be here for <laughs> Dodger giveaway day. Well, the gates open. The car came through, then the TV, then the catamaran. But standing on the catamaran was Jay. <laughs> he went around and he did a victory lap all the way around. Tommy was beside himself. He just he. <laughs> He, he just collapsed on the bench and started laughing. He says, I can't control this. I, I just can't control this. Jay went all the way back around, and, and, and that was it. So there was another time when Jay had put out his first book, Temporary Insanity, and I'll tell you, there was nothing temporary about it with Jay. Absolutely. Jay, Jay sold his book at the ballpark. And after batting practice, he would still be in uniform with a box of books (laughs) up on the mezzanine level right behind our dugout. So fans who were passing by using the restroom or or going to the uh, 
to get something to eat or something to drink. Get a spice uh, Jay, dog or a grilled you, dodger you, dog. And you could also get a book signed by Jay. He was there. <laughs> we we were there for the anthem. Jay stayed a little bit longer. And I turned around after the anthem and I looked up there and I saw somebody in a full Dodger uniform. Now, that was strange. You saw the shirts, but nobody in a full uniform. And it turned out it was Jay signing books just before the ball game. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure that didn't get him a fine at all. He probably got fined something for that. There's no question about it. So a lot of good memories with Jay and some of the things that we did together and some of the other things he did uh, in spring training. Uh, of course, players get physicals, mm-hmm. and Jay didn't do the complete part of his physical. They needed uh, a specimen from him, and <laughs> day after day, Tommy would say, I keep getting this notice from the nurse that you haven't given it, so will you take care of this? Otherwise, I'm going to have to start fining you. Well, a couple of days went by, and then they fined him, so Jay said, okay, I'll take care of it. Well, Jay being Jay was going to have some fun with this. Now, the minor leaguers were there, and there's a long line of them, and Jay went to the head of the line because he is a major league player. <laughs> what Jay had done is taken this specimen jar and put apple juice in it. Oh, jeez. And when he stood there, he presented it to the nurse, and she looked at it, and she says, you know, this looks kind of cloudy. He says, well, here, let me run it through a second time, and he drank it. <laughs> Now, the nurse was in total disbelief. <laughs> she was so shocked, she fell off her chair and bumped her head against a, a storage door. And the doctors had to come out to see what happened. And when they saw that it was Jay, he explained what happened. They just shook their heads and they said, another day in the big leagues. But imagine, <laughs> just imagine those minor leaguers seeing this happen. That a major league player could do something like that. Well, you talk about a call home moment. That would certainly be it. But that was Jay. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, You you got you can't leave before you tell the story about uh, when you guys were groundskeepers. In '79, when Ken Brett, uh, George Brett's brother was with a ball club, he came to me one day and said, what haven't you done in baseball that you'd like to do? I thought he was being serious. And that was strange coming from Ken because he's never serious. And I said, I want to play in a World Series, another all-star game, win 20 games. How about you? And he says, I want to drag the infield. I said, what? He says, yeah, I want to drag the infield. And I want to know if you want to do it with me. At that point, I thought of all the reasons why we shouldn't do it. But out of my mouth, it came, what, when do you want to do this? He said, how about tonight? So in 79, we dragged the infield, and we both got fined $100 for it. Wow. Jay, Jay, before he came over, uh, had heard the story, and when he joined the club, he says, I want to do that with you. I looked at Jay, and I said, Jay, been there, done that, okay? <laughs> but, Old news. But by this time, it was 1980, and they had Diamond Vision. And Jay's locker <laughs> was on the other side of the room. I looked at him, he looked at me, and somehow telepathically we realized this was going to be the night we dragged the infield it was in early september in a game against the pirates and we went down to the groundskeepers they saw us both coming and and they looked at us and they said you want to drag the infield again 
And and then the one groundskeeper who gave me a uniform last time, he says, here, I got your uniform waiting for you. And I just looked at him. I says, I love working with professionals. So anyway, we get dressed in the groundskeeper's uniforms and try to sneak our way back down the runway to the dugout. There were two doors on the left as you approached the dugout was the groundskeeper's room where they kept all of their equipment. And the other room was the bathroom. And as we came down there, Jaeger and Monday spotted us and they knew exactly what we were going to do. And it turned out that Tommy was in the bathroom at the time. So they had to hide us in the groundskeeper's area. Now, the, so Tommy, the, the bath, just to explain it, the, the bathroom is kind of just outside of the uh, or inside of the uh, dugout in, underneath the stadium, right? Yeah, it's it's in the runway that right. connects to the dugout. It's the first when you walk up the runway, that's the first thing you're going to see on the left. Well, Tommy was in there and in and, and uh, Monday and Jaeger had shielded us so that we could uh, make the infield when uh, uh, when the, the other ground crew members went to the auxiliary scoreboard to grab the metal drags that they had. So we went out there with them. Lasorda spotted us. And I'll tell you that within the course of one breath, just about every curse word one could imagine, we heard as we approached it. But Monday, spotting spotting an opportunity as well as anybody, had friends with the Diamond Vision people. That was the big screen TV people. And he says, these guys are going to drag the infield. Get your cameras ready. And they followed us all the way around the infield. <laughs> there, was, there was a good crowd on hand that night. And when we got over to first base, they gave us a standing ovation. So we walked up the steps and made our way back around to the dugout, high-fiving all the fans on the way. Uh, when we got back to um, the dugout, Tommy grabbed us and boy, he let us have it. And he says, I'm going to fine you $250 for that. I can't have you guys doing this. All the reasons why you shouldn't do it. But then at the end, he told Jay, he says, you're pinch hitting for the pitcher when we come back in. So, <laughs> In his groundskeeper's uniform. Well, we had changed uniforms by then. Jay had gone up to hit. I think it was in the bottom of the fifth, maybe the bottom of the sixth. We were trailing by a runner. The game was real close. We had a man on, and wouldn't you know it, Jay hit a pinch home run. And at that point, to my knowledge, and I don't know if anybody else knows this, but at that point, he became the first player in baseball history to drag the infield in the fifth inning and hit a pinch home run in the sixth. (laughs) Well, that set the table. It certainly did. And when he got back to the dugout, Lasorda was so appreciative that he told Jay that his spine was cut in half. And I looked at Tommy. I looked. I looked at Tommy. I said, "What about me?" He says, "Your fine is still the same. Now sit down, and shut up, where I can see you." And that's how that's. And I thought that was going to be the end of the story, but no, that's not what happened because Bud Ferrillo with KBC yeah, had two steamer. hours had two hours of Dodger talk to produce every evening. And in those days, he walked around with these headphones that had two antenna to them (laughs) so that he could be remote. And he wore a vest that had all of the equipment on it, and he had this microphone. Which is probably about 20 pounds. It was. And so you could see on a hot day that Bud was was packing some real sweat because it would get hot out there at times. And he spent... The whole pregame show on this thing, he just couldn't fathom how we got fined. 
So he did an interview with me. I played it straight. Jay, did, he did an interview with Jay. He played it straight. Lasorda tried to play it straight, but the fans called in <laughs> and started jumping on Tommy for finding us for having fun. Oh, and, and Tommy says, I got to have rules here. He's trying to defend for defend himself for doing the right thing. So eventually we went off the air. The um, pregame was over. Tommy called both of us in the office and said, look, he said, I'm not going to find either of you for this. But next time, let me know what you guys are going to do because I'm responsible for this. But it did turn into a, a, a great memory. It's something. Why is it that um, bad decisions make great memories? <laughs> I don't, it's just the way of the world, right? It, that's just the way this happened. And this is a nice segue to tell everybody that this is one of the stories that I talked about in detail in my book, Bring in the Right-Hander. That's right. Uh, yeah. His 22 years in the major leagues. And 1980, of course, was the magical year. And um, uh, there were four, speaking of Mo and Jaeger, Rick Monday and Steve Jaeger, you four became a, a boy band for a while. Oh, we did. We lived the rock star, rock star lifestyle yeah. for about a week. Yeah. At, um, after well, it we won like the World a year, Series. But okay, if you say it's yeah, a week. <laughs> well, it, it was a week. It went by that fast. After we won the World Series. Not for some back, of us, but we yeah, digress. We came back to Los Angeles after on a Thursday. On Friday, Peter O'Malley had a private party at the stadium club where everybody had a chance to pose with the World Series trophy and congratulate one another. Steve Brenner, who was the director of publicity, hmm. came up to me and Jay as we were standing there looking at the trophy and said, um, we got a call from ABC. They'd like to know if you would like to appear on this show tonight called Fridays. It was ABC's takeoff of Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. And Michael Richards who was a, later on Seinfeld, was one of the stars. So we went over, and that included Monday and Jaeger and myself and Jay, and we did the show. After the show, Jay is on the phone, which was where he was all the time anyway, and we're in the parking lot at ABC, and Jay, with a phone in his hand, pulls me over and says, you want to make a record? Then I said, uh, yeah, why not? So he asked Monday and Jaeger, and he said, what's this all about? He says, I'll let you know. So we talked to a, a gentleman by the name of Bob Emmer, who was one of the presidents over, or vice presidents over at Rhino Records. He wanted to put mm -hmm. together a deal that took us in the studio where we sang We Are the Champions and put it out on a record. But he had no idea what label was going to take it. So it took some crazy kind of time for him to put together a deal. But anyway, on Saturday he got all of the studio musicians, the best that L.A. had to offer. Oh, well, who brought wouldn't him in, want to do it? Well, they brought him into the studios, Capitol Records Studio 2 mm. in Hollywood, and they recorded the track for not only We Are the Champions, a hit by Queen, but also New York, New York, made famous by <laughs> Frank Sinatra and a number of others. On Sunday morning, they sent limos to both... Um, to pick all of us up and bring us into the studio. And we spent the day at Capitol Records singing our hearts out as bad as we were, but <laughs> it took some studio wizardry to marry together that wonderful audio track oh. and bring our voices in 
and put together a 45 record. And before the evening was done, we found out that as a group, we were booked on the Carson show on Monday. <laughs> so we spent Sunday. When it was good. That was when the Tonight it, Show was good. It was hot. It was the best show to be on. And we realized, of course, that how many people have gone through what they have in order to get a chance at the Tonight Show. And we were offered it on a silver platter. We bumped somebody out of the spot on Monday where we made our appearance in the first week of November of 1981. And after that, we did all of them, all of them late night shows in Los Angeles. And I'm trying to remember who some of those might be. Mike Douglas would be one of them. Merv Griffin would be another. Wow. And we capped the week off with an appearance on Solid Gold. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we did. Now, did you wear we sequins? Oh, well, we had a sequin T-shirt. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, because you can see the video on, on uh, YouTube. Mm -hmm. You just have to go solid gold, big blue wrecking crew, and you'll have to relive that. But it, it comes with a warning. You can't unsee it. <laughs> we, were, we were so bad that it was actually good. It was. Yeah, well, it was or fun it for me. Yeah, it was fun for me. That's for sure. Oh, man. As a matter of fact, uh, Maxine Stowers has um, dug up a, a, a copy of We Are the Champions, <laughs> and here it is. My dues, time after time, I've done my sentence, but committed no crime, and bad mistakes. That just brings chills up my spine. It brings a tear to my eye. <laughs> Maxine went running and thinks she's howling out in the backyard now. No, no doubt about it. It was fun. It was fun. It's hard to listen to, but when I hear it, when I hear it, it just brings a smile to my face because uh, that week after winning the World Series, that two, uh, you know, that whole uh, postseason of 1981 uh, was definitely the most exciting time of my baseball career and uh, when I think back or when people say to me Jerry what was your favorite team well without a doubt it was the 81 Dodgers because we went to the top of the mountain and we we came back winners uh, of, a, of a world championship something that was missing in Los Angeles at that time since the 1960s so it was our moment it was our time and I thought a little bit about it when I watched the 2020 Dodgers mm. win this this year's World Series. And I thought to them, I said, guys, congratulations. I hope you can party 
like it was 1981. <laughs> oh, man, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. In 1981, I was a wedding photographer, and um, I won't go into detail, but I can tell you, uh, on the anniversary of this uh, couple's wedding, the mother was probably telling her grandchildren about how the bride, the groom, the reverend, and maybe the photographer, and the uh, dads of the bride and groom ruined her day, mom's day, because this beautiful wedding was in the backyard. Everybody was glued to the 25-inch console TV uh, <laughs> on that Saturday afternoon when um, John Stone and Jaeger went back-to-back against Louisiana Lightning, Ron Guidry. Yeah. And uh, then it was, mom came in and said, I think we have a wedding to do. So, but anyway, yeah. then we had to do the wedding and it was the quickest uh, ceremony that I have ever seen, the Reverend said, "Dearly beloved, we are gathered here to pronounce you man and wife." And everybody went back in the living room. So, <laughs> it, well, I, I was expecting you to say the the Reverend looked at everybody and the bride and the groom and said, "You guys good?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, they had to do something for Mom, you know. So it took a little longer than than they anticipated. But yeah, that was that was a, a great year, and it's a great talking to you about all these memories and. Uh, uh, thanks, Jerry Royce, for being a re- uh, first return guest on on Lunch with Legends. And uh, just there's never enough time when we do when we get together. Well, we start telling stories, and uh, what our plan was was to talk about all the great players that had passed on. But once again, it becomes a celebration of of not only the memories of the players that we talked about, but of baseball and some of our personal memories as well. Lou, it's always a it's always a pleasure, always a treat to visit with you, and I look forward to the next time that we do it. Absolutely, and uh, let's. It's the holiday season. Uh, people, this is great book weather. Um, it's going to be a nice winter to to uh, stay in, stay safe, stay healthy, and read. Bring in the right-hander, my 22 years in the major leagues. Now, if people uh, request a book or buy a book on jerryroyce.com, that's uh, uh, Jerry Royce, R-E-U-S-S, excuse me, can they ask for an autograph? Well, every book comes signed. Okay, oh, great. it It comes personally inscribed and signed. I'm the guy who packs it. I'm the guy who creates the label and ultimately takes it to the post office. So you can't get service like that anywhere. Well, it just shows that uh, the uh, the proceeds of the book go to the the crew that puts this all together. That hardworking crew that, that packs it and sends it off. That's right. You know, uh, my my gang, my crew. (laughs) (laughs) And the photo gallery is at Flickr and, uh, um, again, just want, let's let's do that again. Jerry Royce, bring in the right-hander. My 22 years in the major leagues, and um, uh, it is a laugh-out-loud book, and also very touching. It's it's, uh, and now that you've heard Jerry Royce talk, when you read the book, you hear Jerry talk, and that's the I love authors that talk, uh, bring their bring their voice to the pages, and uh, it is a great read. I appreciate you saying that, Lou. Thank you very much. Don't forget the pictures on Flickr. 
a lot of good memories there of ballparks that no longer exist and also some Dodger memories for the people in Los Angeles that want to go back to the, well, 70s and 80s and and see what uh, life was like like that when one was a Dodger fan. And, uh, well, we're going to ramble on out of here. Uh, Jimmy Flame, hit it. And uh, uh, Ramblin' Man, you can read the story of how Jerry Royce and uh, th- this song that's taken us out, uh, how it got to be uh, Jerry Royce's music there. So, uh, Jerry, again, want to thank you very much. And uh, we will talk again someday. Maxine and I are going to come out to Las Vegas and, uh, and bug you guys again. There you go. Look forward to it. All right, buddy. Thanks a lot. Executive producer of Lunch with Legends and ASE Media is Maxine Stowers. Written and produced by Lou Stowers. Also produced by Jimmy Flame for House of Fire Productions. Lunch with Legends is brought to you by World Financial Group and Athena Financial. For all of your personal financial growth needs, call Cassidy Eden at 562-266-7024. And by Conjin Water. Get alkaline water right out of your tap. Call Michael Landa at 714-931-0059. Lunch with Legends is brought to you by Thinkslinger.org. Lunch with Legends is a production of ASE Media. 